challenged us in the first week in Luke. He challenged us in the second week in Acts and Thessalonians. He challenged us this week in First and Second Corinthians, in Galatians and Romans. Lord, you're going to continue to challenge us as we read through the scriptures. We're going to read things that we don't understand or that would bother us, Lord, but we know that your word is sovereign, your, your authority is true, and so we need to wrap our heads around it instead of bringing ourselves to it. So open up the scriptures, Lord, that we might see what you would have for us this morning. See the truth and light that shines through your word. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Be with us. Amen. So, um, great. This is one of the, this is one of the weeks like, can I be honest? Like, reading through this, I, I'm not ahead anymore. I got stuck. Because I'm reading through, and you get to 1 Corinthians, and you're like, really? Then you get to 2 Corinthians, and you're like, oh, maybe we live in Corinth. <laughs> and then you get to Galatians, and you're like, really? And then you get to Romans, and you're like, really? And so, you know, I'm a nerd, so, like, when I read this stuff, I had to, like, has, I, like, went to my commentaries. Like, I have a, a very small library, if you will. I have books about the Bible. I have the Bible, and I have books about the Bible. And so, you know, I have resources that, that, in many cases, you might not have available to you as readily. And so, as I'm reading through this, I'm like, i got to go to my commentaries, which is exactly what we're not supposed to do in this type of reading. We're supposed to just blow through it and, and be like, all right, no, I'm getting the big picture, big picture. But there's so many small picture things that sticks out that stuck out to me. I, I couldn't help it. And, and I also have been communicating with people in each of the small groups. And what I heard was that there was one topic in particular that all of the small groups at least talked about, if not got hung up on. And that was the topic of 1 Corinthians 14, the passage about women in ministry. And really what I want to offer to you this morning, that if, you just, if you're reading through the Bible and you didn't stop there and have questions, then you probably don't view the Bible as an authoritative document for your life. Because we at Hope Covenant Church fully affirm women in ministry, and we have women who get up and preach. And so if you read that text and you go, um, you know what, we're just forgetting about that, then, then clearly, I mean, last week I said it, for the beginning of last week's sermon was, how does the covenant church define authority, right? We say, okay, we don't have the Pope that, that we use as an authority figure. We don't um, have creeds or confessions that we use as, as authoritative. We believe the Apostles' Creed, but it's not authoritative for us. We don't um, use systematic theology or the ecumenical councils to define what we're going to believe. In fact, we just say it's the Bible. Where is it written? So if this is written in it, we, if we have some work to do. Because those things might seem dissonant. Patches, passages like this should catch you off guard. But I'm actually going to reference a couple of different texts this week. I, I, I have like six in my sermon. I'm only going to read two of them. I'm going to trust that you have been reading and you're going to continue to read, or at least you know generally what I'm talking about. Because it really becomes this. How do we balance texts that seem to be in opposition to one another? 
We have to do this beginning right at the beginning of the Bible. Even if we don't talk about the New Testament, we have to do this right away. The first two chapters of Genesis tell two creation narratives that are in tension with one another. One of them has humans being created on the sixth day. The other one has humans being created on the first day. How do you do that? How are those things in tension with one another? We have to do it throughout the entire biblical narrative. And so what I want to offer to you this morning is that when I see texts that are in tension with one another, that seem to point to two different things, the place to go is context. But ultimately, we have to remember this truth as we do that. That the Bible, this is an old covenant saying, um, David Nyball repeats it, but, uh, wait, no, no. It's not David Neville, it's another one. I'll look it up. I'm sorry, I forgot to write it down in my notes. Um, But this is something that people right at the beginning of our denomination say, that the Bible is food, not ammunition. At the very beginning of of our context as a church, the Bible is food and not ammunition. So what does that mean? It means that the Bible is for us to grow spiritually, to develop a deeper relationship with Christ, but it should not be weaponized against other people. Let me say that again. The Bible is for our own spiritual growth. It is food for our soul. It is an authoritative document in our individual lives, but it cannot be weaponized against others. That is not the intent of Scripture. But ultimately, that is the intent. That, that is, that is the, what we see Scripture so often in the popularized media doing. We have people pulling it, politicians from all sides of the aisles, from right, left, center, and wherever else, grabbing Bible verses and standing at them and saying, this is my ammunition against them, or this is my ammunition against them. But the Bible is spiritual food, not ammunition. So as I read this, you have to keep that in mind. So I'm going to assume that you're all, like I said, I'm going to assume you're up to date on the readings, and I'm just going to glance through a couple of them briefly. The first one comes from 1 Corinthians, and this is the text that we're discussing primarily this morning. So I'm going to read the whole thing. I don't have it up on the screen because you've already read it, hopefully, with your eyes. So now I want you to hear it. So close down your, close your eyes, if you will, just listen up, and I want you to hear this text. And I'm not going to read just the, the, the passage that probably caught you up. I'm going to read the entire section from where Paul begins. I'm going to summarize now. I'm going to read through it. And then we're going to discuss why this is a text that we have to talk about intention. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. It's on page 144. When we meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell us some special revelation that God has given, one will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. Again, the Bible is food, not ammunition. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time. Someone should interpret what they say, but if no one is present, who can interpret? They must be silent in your church meetings. The first time Paul tells somebody to be quiet and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy. Let others evaluate what is said, but if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. The second time Paul has told somebody to be quiet. In this way, all who sorry, in this 
this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but peace, as in all of the meetings of God's holy people. Women should be silent during church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it's improper for women to speak in church meetings. So keep your eyes closed. I'm going to read a passage that you will read tomorrow. This comes from Romans 16. It says, I commend to you my sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Centuria. And it says a little bit farther down the page, Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. And then a little bit farther down the page, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who are in prison with me, they are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. You seeing the tension yet? Maybe not. Maybe all of that just sounded garbled to you. It's possible. But I think really what's going on is that we have to talk about context. Because let me tell you, there is tension in those two passages. In one tension, in one uh, passage, Paul says very clearly, we might think, hey, women should be silent in the meetings of the church. And then in the following passage to a different group of people, he names women who are not silent in the church. He names Phoebe, who delivers the letter to the Romans and likely was one of the readers of the letter to the Romans. She was the literal, she was the person who took the gospel to the church at Rome. He names Priscilla and Aquila, he says, are my co-workers in the gospel, co-laborers in the gospel, an equal level, perhaps. And then he names Junia, and this is the most significant of all. Even though likely you read, or you would have read through this text as nothing. This is the problem, right? Like when we read these texts, he names Junia as a, as a female apostle, apostle who is specifically distinguished among apostles. But the problem is when we get to texts like women should be silent in the church, we stop and we stare and we go, how is this possible? This doesn't seem to fit with our worldview. And, and we go on and how do we focus in? But when we get to lists of Paul being like, hey, say hi to this person, say hi to this person, tell this person I might stay at their house, maybe I won't prepare a room just in case, right? Then we're like, we just read straight past it, and we're like, ah, oh, okay, there's nothing in here. Like, let me just get to the next thing that catches my attention. But what Paul is doing here is radical, because we have to think about the context that Paul comes from. This is where I'm going to buzz through a couple of verses. So in one case, he says women should be silent in the church. And when he says this, I want you to hear that the context that he was a part of, and we should all know this, women have been discriminated against for a very long time. Women were discriminated against during this time period. That's unequivocal. Women's rights were not a thing. Okay? So his context says that when he says women should be silent in the church, they probably said, no questions asked. Makes sense to us. That's right in line with our cultural framework for understanding. Women weren't supposed to talk in Greek culture. That's right there. 
make sense to them. Why ask questions? But then he says, there's no longer male or female. In Galatians, specifically chapter 3, verse 28. And when you say something like there is no longer male or female in a society that treats males as full citizens and full people and females as lesser than, this is a radical and culture-shifting statement. So that's the context that Paul's coming from when he writes all of these letters. So that's part of the tension that we have to read into this. We don't live in Paul's time. So when we see women be silent in the church, we would say, well, there's a lot of questions there. I have a lot of questions about that. Can you explain that to me? Can you go deeper into that? When he says there's no longer male or female, we say, yeah, that's right in line with what we believe in our current culture, and we read right past it. But this has not always been the case. Paul's words were crazy talk to these people. When he starts naming female apostles, that's insane. And what we're left with is that Paul is incredibly pro-female for his time. This is, the, this is the truth. Paul, in comparison to other people who are writing at the same time, is incredibly pro-women. That does not erase the text. We still have to ask the questions about the text that trip us up because the Bible is authoritative to us. But we have to start from the pre the, the presupposition that Paul is incredibly pro-female, incredibly pro-women, in comparison to the other people at the time. And so then, we have to ask this question. What are the rules, and what are the exceptions to the rules? Is the rule that women have to be silent in the church, and the exception is that Judy is an apostle, who's clearly not silent? Or is the rule that women should be in leadership roles, like apostleship, and the exception is that in the Corinthian church, women need to be silent. This is the question that we have to ask. Because ultimately, the Bible is a contextual document. And there are things, there are texts that we have to hold in tension. And so, I'm just going to run through a couple things here, really, really briefly. Um, but another example of Paul being pro-women you'll read later on, and, and you, know, you might have heard this as a text that tries to hold up men, but, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Have you heard this? Probably it's, it comes from Ephesians. What's the following verse? Husbands submit to your wives. The first thing, wives submit to your husbands. Again, completely contextual. Everybody would be like, yeah, that's what everybody does. Husbands submit to your wives. Crazy. Radicals. Stop the, stop the press. Hey, we're just reading this. Stop reading that. That's crazy talk. See, Paul is always balancing these two things. How do we move culture forward? And how do we balance that? Mutual submission, equality, is not a value in the ancient world. We have to hear that. And so, let's look at some of the discrepancies as I read them. You can disagree with this if you'd like. But we have 1 Corinthians 11, which was another hot topic of conversation in a couple of the different uh, small groups. Women should pray and prophesy with their heads covered. Okay, it says that in 1 Corinthians 11. Which, by the way, we view that as contextual today because I can look out and have your heads covered. Okay? We're all just praying. So, there's that. But both of these are verbal forms of teaching, especially prophecy. Second, women should be silent in the church. So, they should not speak. 1 Corinthians 14. How can you be told how to do something and then told that you have to be silent? Is he, all of a 
sudden you're getting this weird tension, right? What are we going to do with it? Was one of these just made up? Some people have suggested that. Some scholars have suggested that one of these two verses was just added to the Bible and Paul never really meant it. I'm pretty uncomfortable with that. Because that means that we have a long, I mean, then we got to ask that about a lot of things in the Bible, right? But people have said that. Paul doesn't contradict himself. We also have, this is in 1 Timothy 4, you're going to see this later. And I'm, I'm actually not going to talk about this text today because I, we don't have nearly enough time to go through that. Um, but I'm going to use the Wednesday Bible study. It's going to be kind of an extended Wednesday Bible study, the videos on Facebook. Um, and I'm going to go through it in the same way that I'm doing 1 Corinthians 14 here today. I'm going to do the same thing for 1 Timothy 4. Because there's context to that, too, that we need to know. But then, so you have women should not teach or have authority. Specifically, authority is the big piece of that. Um, and then you have, hi, say hi to all my female friends who are in authority roles. I mean, what do we do? Which one does Paul really need, right? We have to ask ourselves these questions. What's the context? And so I want to offer to you this morning, not the only explanation, but a explanation for the First Corinthians 14 passage that says women should be silent in the church, and how that is contextual to that time period. And then you will be the judge. Should we have women preach? That's, the freedom in Christ in the covenant church means that you don't necessarily have to hold that position. But I'm going to tell you right now, the covenant affirms the position for women to be in ministry, and your pastor does too, strongly. Which is why all the times that I have had somebody else preach, except for once when we had a world-renowned biblical scholar talk about his main area of resource, research out of the pulpit for whatever reason, it's always been a woman. Think about that every single time. Because it's important to hear female voices. That's what our denomination affirms. But at the same time, I'm not going to make you say that that's what you believe. That's part of freedom in Christ. So you're going to be the judge today. Do I, does this theory seem to fit with this text? You're going to have to come up with the answer for yourself. Obviously, you know where I'm coming from. I'm going to try to prove to you that one of the, the rule is that women should be in authority positions in the church, and that the exception to the rule is what's happening in Ephesus in 1 Timothy, and what's happening specifically in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 14. So I want to start with a little bit of context, because the Bible is food, not ammunition. You should know this. The problem is most of us don't know this, because like you, I am not an expert in ancient Greek culture. It might seem like it sometimes, but I just read people who are experts in ancient Greek culture. But I'm not. So I'm going to give you what experts in ancient Greek culture tell us about non-Christian religions in cities like Corinth, trade cities. So they tell us that there are other religions where that have specifically strong female prophets, prophetesses, if you want, prophets, women who speak in public on behalf of their religious views. And I'm going to break down for you exactly what these experts, these are not always biblical experts, sometimes these are non-religious experts, say about that context. So remember, these are non-Christians, these are Gentile, specifically Greek religions. I can point out a couple of them to you. We don't really know exactly which one it is, but this is pretty commonplace. One, you go to speak in the public comments. Okay? So the women, they, they would 
do this in private, the two or three of the female prophets from the Greek temple would go out and speak in a public place. They would uncover their heads. They would take off the traditional head coverings of the ancient world as a symbol that when they were speaking, that the powers of the, 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 the gods that they worshipped, so not, not the Christian god, but the gods that they worshipped, would be able to channel their spirit directly through their head and speak through their mouth. So they would uncover their heads in the public square, which was deemed not uh, dignifying. Paul points that out. But they would uncover their heads in the public square, and then they would all start speaking at once to symbolize that the spirit had come on all of them at the exact same moment. So they would all start speaking at once, and they would be jumbled and rambling, and some of them would speak uh, in random gibberish, and some of them would uh, speak against God, the, the Christian God, which was becoming more and more popular during this time period. And finally, they would start to act out of control, because they wanted to give either the perception, and it depends on whether you believe that they were actually possessed. I'm not going to make that judgment call. If they were actually possessed, if their actions actually led to them being possessed by a demonic force, then they acted out of control because that demonic force started to control their body. If not, if you are a person who says, well, I don't know if I believe that specifically, then they started to act as if they were out of control. Okay? So this is the, this is the order of operations. You go speak in the public commons, you uncover your head, it's almost primarily females who are doing this, they all would begin to speak once and then they'd start to act out of control and ride their bodies, they would lose control of their bodies. So now I want... To, to offer to you exactly what Paul is saying from chapters 11 through 14, especially 14 where he summarizes. He says, don't speak in church meetings, which are public gatherings, which seems to match up very well with all of the women who were told that they could speak only in public when they were prophesying on behalf of the deities that they were worshiping. And then he says, in accordance with the law. To which you might ask, okay, which law? Which law in the Old Testament? In fact, it came up in the small group that I was a part of this week. Well, that's an Old Testament law, that women are not allowed to speak in public. It's actually not an Old Testament law. In every one of the 600-some-odd commandments, not a single one of them talks about women speaking in public. And in fact, the Old Testament has a long tradition, including Deborah, who is a judge, many female prophetesses. I mean, the, the, the problem is, when Paul says, in accordance with the law, we assume that he's talking about the law of Abraham, the law of Moses, when in reality he was probably talking about the law in the city that they were part of, the municipal law. So right there, we have to, we have to ask the question, well, if we don't know the Old Testament, then we don't know that he's probably not talking about the biblical law. He's probably talking about a corporate law. So women were not allowed to speak in public, except for when they were prophesying in these ancient cities. And so he says, don't speak in church in accordance with the law, the corporate law, the public law, municipal law. Then they would uncover their heads. So what does he say? He says, keep your head covered. Don't act like the people who are being possessed. Keep your head covered. Is he saying that women always have to cover their heads? Well, I, you can read the text, but it seems like specifically these women were uncovering their heads for specifically dubious purposes. And so he responds by saying, don't do it. If you remember, I can go back to the text, but um, he says right here, that in this way, all who prophesy will have to have a turn to speak one after another, 
idolatry. Finally, they acted out of control. He says, for God is not a God of order. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, remember that the people who prophesy are in control of their spirits and can take turns. The problem is we don't necessarily teach all of this in Sunday school or whatever else. And so we, we, we would rather just avoid the text in the first place. We'd rather just never read it. But you're reading through the entire New Testament. And so when you get to this stuff, it's, it's my duty to inform you of why we believe this is a contextual document. This is just one theory. There are, why, there are, there are other theories. Theories that just say, hey, look, it was, it, was a, it was just a passage about disorder. Clearly there was some sort of disorder on. Don't speculate to this extent. But there was just disorder, and Paul's talking about disorder, and that's what he's talking about. But we have to be willing to do this. Especially if we're going to try to use the Word of God as ammunition. Which I said at the beginning is not what we're supposed to do. See, the truth is, if you read through the text, and you look for your own spiritual development in it, if you read through it as food, you probably don't need to do this. Because when I read the text, and it says nothing about the way in which I am supposed to speak, I probably can gloss over this and continue to read on and not have to worry about it. Why we have to do this is when we start to weaponize it. When we begin to weaponize the text, the, 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 the gospel, and the epistles of Paul against individual groups of marginalized people, this should not be news. It's the same way in which in the book of Philemon, Paul speaks specifically about how slavery should be done away with. It's the first sermon that I ever preached here. I said, Paul hates slavery so much that he calls the slave owner to, to, to welcome the slave as a brother, as an equal. But, guess what? Philemon in the 1840s was used as justification for promoting slavery opposite to its purpose. We have to ask in context of the whole, what is the rule and what is the exception? And what's the context? Because remember, Corinth is not a Jewish city. Corinth is a Gentile city. We're not talking about individuals who see that practice out there don't bring it in here. We're talking about individuals who were just doing that practice out there and now they're in here. These people are new Christians. They're like, when I was worshiping this God, whomever it is, in the case of Ephesus, it's Artemis. When I was worshiping Artemis, this is how I behaved. Now I'm worshiping Yahweh, I'm worshiping Christ, so I'm just going to grab that, the way I was behaving over there, and bring it here. Paul says, no, we got no place for it here. So, now you're the judge. What's more likely? Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, which is something that would have raised all kinds of heck. But he just said that flippantly and passingly, and he wasn't really, he didn't really mean it. And then goes on to name female apostles, or a female apostle, and female deacons and female co-workers in the gospel. But you know what, he was just like, it was just like a passing phrase, and now that's not really true. Or, that there's an idolatry that's spoken and lengthened about in Acts and in other 
epistles. That was slowly seeping its way into the Corinthian church. It's up to you to decide which is more likely. The reason that we have to guard ourselves in this way is because there is influence in the world that would seek to corrupt the Bible. I'll just call it demonic. It would seek to corrupt the Bible and ruin the message of the Bible. There are structures, there are powers and principalities that when textual evidence threatens the status quo of what culture says is right and wrong, they will try and change the Bible and they will reinterpret the Bible to fix it. And so often I've heard people who come from conservative backgrounds theologically say, you're trying to fix the Bible to have females in leadership because that's not what it says. When in reality... Paul wanted females in leadership in the first century, and that was the countercultural thing. It's one of the unique ways in which the church has caught up to the Pauline standard. We're not contextualizing, we're not putting something here that's not here. It's here, it's all over here. I'm not telling you that women should be in leadership because we live in the 21st century. I'm telling you that women should be in leadership because it's biblical. Because it's right there in the text. But like I said, when, when, we, when we threaten the status quo with Scripture, we try and change it. I'm going to run through this super quickly. I'm going to try to. I'll give you an example. So I talked about Junia, the female apostle. This idea was so threatening to the church that over time, the church has tried to change the Bible to fit their preconceived notions of who should be in leadership and who should not be. And the most egregious example, in my opinion, is this verse on Junia, which well, most of us read over anyway, Romans 16, 7. So the first thing that they tried to do around 1890 was change Junia to Junius. Make it a male name. By the way, what was going on around 1890? Women's rights? The birth of feminism? So everybody's comfortable with the text saying Junia until 1890, and now women are actually being empowered, and they go, oh, we got to change this. So they change it to Junius. They said, they just forgot the S. Literally, they forgot the circumflex. They forgot the S. But the problem is this. Not a single manuscript, that means a copy of the Bible that we have, has Junius as the name until, like, 700, somebody accidentally puts it once, which is really late in biblical times. So no manuscript has this. And in fact, Junius isn't even a real name. The, the best thing that I could come up with is like the name Amanda. Who knows a person named Amanda? Like most of us, right? It's a common name. Who, who knows a man named Amanda? I mean, unless some celebrity named their kid that yesterday, I've never heard of the name of Mando. But this is basically what you've done with Junia to Junius. Junia, popular name in Latin culture. Over 500 uh, different references to Junia. Non-biblical, random people writing about, hey, by the way, I have this friend named Junia. All during the time. Junius, Amando, not a real name. Do you speak Greek? They pulled the wool over our eyes.
sure. Yeah, they just missed the S. They just missed the O and it made it go. And it wasn't even really considered until the Brennan's rights was popularized. I mean, like, I wish that I was making this up. So anyway, this failed, okay? No, no current Bible holds Junius as the name for Junia. Basically, over time, scholars were just like, that's fake news. And they got rid of it. Okay? They got rid of it. They, they got rid of the S. They said, we're not going to do that. Some Bibles that are somewhat patriarchal, like the ESV, still have a little textual note where it says, okay, by the way, it could be Junius. We don't really know. Amanda. But, um, but, but it's ridiculous. And so eventually they get rid of it. So instead, patriarchy does not die easily. Instead, they decide to change, and they decide to add a verb. So, um, the first translations of the Bible would translate this verse, the 16-7, as great Andronicus and Junia, who is, who are well-known among the apostles. Okay? What does it mean to be well-known among them? Well, it means that they are well-known, and they are among the apostles. They are one of the apostles. But in English, you can change among to two, and in 90% of the cases, you don't change the meaning of the sentence. So they go among, two, they're basically synonyms, so two. Well, now it's Junia, who is well known to the apostles. You've just changed the entire meaning of the verse because you changed one word that's a synonym in English and not a synonym in Greek. See, patriarchy does not die easily. Our preconceptions, our, our tendency to weaponize the Bible and change its meanings and read in what we want it to say, do not die easily. But the Bible is not food. It's, it's not ammunition, it is food. And if you want one final nail in the coffin on this one about Junia being a prepared fossil, there is an ancient author, his name is John Chrysostom, Spelling Christostom is really difficult, so I didn't put a slide up on it. Um, but he was a native Greek speaker. So um, most of us are native English speakers. This guy knew Greek. In fact, he was a Greek expert. He, in other parts, in other texts that he writes, he trashes on Paul for being bad at Greek. Literally. This guy was a Greek scholar. He was an expert. He also didn't really like women very much. It's well noted. He was, not a, he was not a feminist. He was, a, he was pretty anti-woman. But yet, he writes a commentary on the book of Romans. And he says this, To be an apostle is something great, but to be outstanding among the apostles. Just think of what a wonderful song of praise that is, that, the, that they were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Outstanding among them, not well known to them. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she would be deemed worthy of the title apostle. There are dozens of such examples. But I'm going to conclude here because the bears are playing like 30 minutes. If you go to the Word of God and you ask, how do you want me to follow you? I promise you that you will be fed and you will be filled. The same thing that happens at the table. Different. 
I spent hours, I mean, I, I have a degree in this. I spent hours and hours studying this. Because this is hard. There are millions of first of words written about the Bible. Not in the Bible. There are millions of words written about the Bible. It's really difficult. But it shouldn't be an obstacle. Having to dig deeper is not something that should discourage you from wanting to read. It should be humbling, sure. You should never go to it and go, this is what it means, I'm positive. If I do that, cut me off. Tell me, John, you can't do that. It should be humbling. But it should also be inspiring. How much wisdom is there in this? That is counterculture. And so inclusive of marginalized people. See, we live in a world that wants to push its mess onto this. It wants this to justify its messiness and its brokenness. Do you think that Satan would want to have it any other way than for people in our culture who do not identify as Christians to think that the Bible is sexist and that it is racist, that it is violent, that it is discriminatory against sexual minorities? Do you not think that that would be the best tactic of Satan to do? To make us seem so horrible but in reality, the context, imperialistic, when the context would speak in direct opposition to that, Jesus was the most inclusive figure of the entire historical world. Romans 1 talks about humanity trading God's truth. You read this on Friday. Humanity trades God's truth for a lie and started acting not out of God's will, but out of their own sinful desires. There is no greater sinful desire, in my opinion, than pride, than the lust for power and the abuse of privilege against people who are marginalized. It was women. Frankly, it still is women. The Covenant Church does not have enough female senior pastors. There are too many denominations, and by the way, in Olin Park, more than half of the churches do not ordain women in ministry roles. Some of that's just, hey, you can't preach at all. Some of that's you can't be a lead pastor, which by the way, was nowhere in your reading, and you won't find it in your reading. We've weaponized the text to justify our own preconceptions about the world to justify our own bigotry. But the Bible has never and does not and will never agree with one person's desire to dominate over someone else because Christ came to be a servant and not to dominate. That's a human thing. It's got no place here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go to the table this morning, we ask that reveal to us all of the ways in which we read our own preconceptions and notions into the text. We ask that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would not let us get off easy by scheming over hard to read things, but that you would draw us nearer and